Well, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turn your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. If you don't know how to get to that little minor prophet, the simplest way to get there is to turn to the first book in the New Testament, which is the book of Matthew, and head back left past Malachi, past Zechariah, past Haggai, and then past Zephaniah, and you'll be in the right place as Habakkuk is the fifth to last book in the Bible. Or if you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 785. Last week, we began a very brief set of sermons through this short book of Habakkuk, and we saw that Habakkuk's name means embrace, which is something of a fitting one-word summary of the book as a whole. For what you see in these chapters is Habakkuk wrestling with God in prayer over questions that Christians have asked throughout the centuries. God, where are you in the midst of all the difficulty? Why do you seem so indifferent in the midst of all the injustice? Are you ever going to do anything for your oppressed and suffering people? And this morning, what we see is Habakkuk's second prayer and God's second response to his prophet. For this book is something like a prayer journal between Habakkuk and Yahweh. And it's the second interchange that we want to look at this morning from chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 5. So let me read the passage for us and then pray for God to bless our study. Then we will begin. Let us hear now as God is speaking to us through His Word. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, You have ordained them as a judgment, and You, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he makes sacrifices to his net, offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest, his greed is as wide as shale, like death. He never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own peoples. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank You that Your Word is perfect. It is pure. It is powerful. We thank You that You have breathed it out. Even this old minor prophet, 
for our instruction and edification. We thank You that You sanctify us by the truth. So open our eyes this morning to behold the wonderful truth in this passage. That we might be conformed to Christ. That we might be built up in faith. That we might be strengthened in faithfulness so as to walk in obedience towards You. Give us eagerness, we pray, to listen. Give me courage and clarity to preach as Your Word says I must. Help us to hear with earnestness, knowing we're not promised another sermon. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thomas Guthrie walked up to his gallows on June 1st, 1661, sentenced as he was to die by hanging and lose his head because he had been convicted of heresy. So what was his false doctrine that meant he was soon going to lose his head? Well, he believed that Jesus Christ, that Christ alone is head of the church, not King Charles in Britain. And when King Charles was restored to the throne in 1660, he reneged on a promise that he had made to the Scottish Covenanters at the time, which was a promise that he would recognize that Christ alone had supremacy over the church. But as political rulers are wont to do, once in power, he pulled back on all of those promises. And so Guthrie and 11 other ministers in Scotland wrote to King Charles saying, hey, you remember the promise that you made just a few months ago that you would allow the church here in Scotland to submit only to Christ as its head. Well, for their action, King Charles threw these 12 men into the Edinburgh prison at the Edinburgh castle awaiting their death. And so on the morning as he rose up the steps to his gallows and the noose was tightened around his neck, Thomas Guthrie had some final words that he cried out to all those that were listening. And they sounded something like this. O Lord, Art not thou the everlasting Holy One? I will not die, but I shall live. Of all the places he could pull out of Scripture as his final resting place, the anchor for his soul in the moment of martyrdom, he reaches all the way back to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. And students, if you live long enough, eventually you're going to have to deal with these twin realities that are the, the major pillars of this book of Habakkuk. How does God's sovereignty over all things, His control over everything and everyone, how does God's sovereignty relate to the human suffering that you'll see in the world, maybe experience for many years? When cancer's curse comes, government injustice arises, church hypocrisy flowers, Life's affliction seems to come like wave after wave after wave on the boat of your life. What will be the anchor for your soul lest you crash upon the rocks of despair and doubt? Well, this morning is going to give us that anchor in the life of Habakkuk, an anchor that we're going to eventually see works its way out through Scripture as one of the richest resting places for the faith of God's people so if you were with us last week, we introduced ourselves to this man named Habakkuk. We found out that he ministered in all likelihood during the reign of this evil king named King Jehoiakim, who is one of the sons of the great good king Josiah. 
And in this day in the southern kingdom of Judah, the land was full of corruption. The courts were full of greed and oppression. Everything seemed to be screaming violence and injustice all around Habakkuk. And so we saw that he was already, for how long we don't know, but for quite some time he's praying for God to do something about the problems in Judah, to remember his covenant people. And so he cries out to them, How long, O Lord, will you be indifferent? to all of this injustice. And so we heard God speak first time to Habakkuk in verse 5 of chapter 1. And he said to Habakkuk, brace yourself. Get ready for what I'm about to tell you. I'm already at work, but I'm raising up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to come against Judah, to be like my axe to cut down the tree of Judah, to be my instrument of correction to my covenant people. And what we get basically in our prayer from Habakkuk at the beginning of our text this morning is Habakkuk saying, that can't be right. You're going to do that? Because he said, verse 5, Yahweh did, look and be astounded. I'm doing something that you would not believe even if you heard it. And so Habakkuk hears it, and now we actually hear God's word come true. Habakkuk can't believe what he's hearing. So once again, he's wrestling in prayer, seeking understanding with God, and then God's going to respond to him in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 2. And the central theme of our passage is one that is one of the most significant truths that you'll find in all of Scripture. God's sovereignty calls for faith. We saw last week that God is sovereign over all nations, not just Judah, but even evil empires like Babylon. And what we see this morning is the proper response to that all-consuming all-encompassing sovereign rule of God is nothing but faith from his people. Habakkuk has questions of God's use of evil, maybe questions that you've asked before. He has problems with what God is apparently planning to do. Maybe you've had problems before with what God is apparently planning to do. And God's going to try to answer those things But, like Habakkuk is soon going to find out, maybe just not in the way that you would exactly expect. So we're going to see, first of all, in Habakkuk's prayer, faith in the searching. And secondly, in God's response, faith in the waiting. So verse 12 through 17, the remainder of chapter 1, is Habakkuk's second prayer to God. And essentially, if you wanted to summarize it, he's saying, wait a second. You're telling me that you're going to use the greater evil, Babylon, to crush the lesser evil, Judah. You're going to use the more treacherous people against the less treacherous people. Help me understand how this can be. And so in the course of this first or second prayer from Habakkuk, he essentially has three different complaints or three different problems with God's use of the wicked. And the first is, it seems contrary to God's name. Look at how verse 12 begins. Habakkuk says, are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One. You see, he knows God's covenant name, Lord, Yahweh, from everlasting to everlasting. He is the all-sufficient, all-powerful being in the universe. He is in all authority and all control, and Habakkuk knows it. But you see also, kids, don't you, that this is a personal faith he has in God? Because he doesn't say, you're Lord, the God, the Holy One, what does he say? You are my God and my Holy One. Uh, The gospel, the good news is always in the personal pronouns. It's the ability to say, he is mine and, and I am his. 
So you see faith coming out of Habakkuk, even right from the beginning. He's seeking and he's searching for understanding and faith in his covenant-keeping God. He's trying to know how this can exactly work out with who God is as his names communicate that he is. He's the eternal, everlasting Lord of the universe, the God over all other gods. He is the Holy One, completely, totally set apart from evil. So Habakkuk has confusion here related to God's name, but it also leads to a conviction because notice how verse 12 continues. It's almost like he questions, interestingly asks of God, we shall not die, right? Because of who you are, the covenant-keeping God, we're not going to die, right? We're your covenant-chosen people. We're the nation here in Israel that you have redeemed for yourself. You're not going to make us perish forever, are you? seems contrary to your name to do what it seems like you're going to be doing. And as often happens, maybe you've had this experience. You begin to pray in confusion. You begin to pray in uncertainty. And the Lord begins to move in your heart, to move confusion to a little bit more conviction about, yes, He is actually up to good. He is actually doing something that makes sense. Because you see, even here by the end of verse 12, Habakkuk has moved to some degree of confusion that he's granting for certain God is going to raise up Babylon like he said he was. You see the end of verse 12, he says, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. That's even important, the words that he's using there. You've ordained them as a judgment, as a reproof. He understands that God doesn't mean to destroy his covenant people, but he does mean to discipline them with a rod, with an instrument of correction named Babylon. That's why they're not going to be cast off forever. He knows that God's covenant promises are towards His people. They're covenant promises that do bring correction and discipline, but not destruction towards the people He's called to Himself. And even uses another name for God, doesn't He? O'Rock. Emily and I have recently watched these rock climbing documentaries. And one of the more fascinating things to me outside of the courage and craziness of these climbers is you get these drone shots of these incredibly majestic rock formations that the climbers are trying to summit. You know, these formations that as the sun rises in the east or sets in the west, that seems to rise or set on these immense, immovable, powerful places of rock-like granite. And ever since God redeemed His people out of Egypt, they took to calling Him the rock. For it was out of a rock that He provided for His people. It was a rock that was a picture of His immovable protection and provision for His people. And so here Habakkuk is resting again on one of God's names. What you're planning to do, God, it seems contrary to your name, O rock. This is his first problem. A second issue he has, it seems contrary to God's nature. Look at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong... Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So again, he knows something of God's character that is abundantly true. God is too pure. He's too holy to look upon evil. Uh, This language here in verse 13 from my ESV of idly look. You could translate it as tolerate. So why do you, God, who cannot tolerate evil, seem to be tolerating the evil empire named Babylon? Do you see his problem? It seems contrary to your character. And what Habakkuk is essentially asking is a question that has rung throughout the centuries. How can you who are good work through someone 
or some nation that is utterly evil? How can you do this for the good of your people and the righteous ends of your sovereign purposes? Reconciling this sovereign power of God, even working through the midst of human iniquity and transgression. Maybe you've asked that question before. Habakkuk's asking that question. Maybe you tried to search for understanding of how you can deal with these twin truths. Habakkuk himself is searching for understanding. So you want to pay attention to the answer God is soon going to give to Habakkuk's prayer. Maybe it'll answer questions or concerns that you have about how God can do this, even when it seems contrary to His name and contrary to His nature. In verse 14 through 17, Habakkuk goes on to say, it also seems contrary to God's justice. Because it's like the language at the end of verse 13 about the wicked swallowing up the righteous puts a picture in Habakkuk's mind of a fisherman who's just gathering fish at any moment of his own whim. So you want to think about, if you just scan through verse 14 through 17, Babylon likened to this evil, this greedy fisherman that just takes his net and grabs fish whenever he wants. And in verse 15, you'll see that he brings them up with a hook and he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet and so he rejoices and is glad. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, you know, at 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, it's carted off by this power named Assyria that even well into the 7th, century B.C. They are the dominant power in the land, and they are full of cruelty and brutality. And one of the most common ways we can illustrate just how cruel they were to their prisoners of war that they would turn into slaves. They would take each one and put a hook through their lower lip and lead them off to slavery as though they were fish gathered on hooks. And it seems as though Babylon just carried on that cruel and brutal practice taking their prisoners of war off to the land of captivity by hooks in their mouth, just as you would to a fish. And Habakkuk's struggling with this, not just that they do that and how evil it is, but they rejoice in it, verse 15 says. This brings them great happiness and gladness to do this to people. Even further, you'll see in verse 16, they worship these implements of war. He says they make sacrifices to their net. He makes offerings to his dragnet, and by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. So these torturous means of conquering people, of just gathering slaves and captives into the Babylonian empire, has just made them fat and comfortable and healthy and altogether pleasant. And Habakkuk says, this can't be right, can it? Verse 17, you'll see his question essentially ends with, are they going to go on killing mercilessly forever? It seems contrary to your name. It seems contrary to your nature, contrary to your justice, God, to do what you say you're going to do. And so look at how Habakkuk sits at his watch post in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. If you were with us last week, we noticed how these verbs of look and see are quite significant in Habakkuk's ministry. In verse 3, he cries out to God in his prayer, Why do you make me look and see all of this iniquity? When God shows up and speaks to Habakkuk for the first time, he says in plural commands to all of Judah, All of you, look and see what I'm getting ready to do. And here now in verse 1 of chapter 2, what's Habakkuk saying? Okay, I'm waiting. I'm looking. I'm seeing. I'm watching. 
I'm patiently resting upon what you will say in response to my concern. What the ESV translates as complaint, but his heartfelt cry unto God. So I wonder what you tend to do when life seems to be making no sense. Or you seem to sense that God is doing something in your life that you really don't want him to be doing. Don't you know it's true that many Christians today, far too many Christians today, almost with a degree of pride, seem to act as though they have a doctoral degree in grumbling to others about what God is doing in their life. When Habakkuk's example and all of Scripture continually tells us what? We take our problems about God to God and wait on what He will say to us in response to our struggles. Because He delights to meet His people, to reach down to them and respond to their struggles. And so Habakkuk's faith now moves from faith in the searching to faith in the waiting. As for the first time and only time in the book, we're saying Yahweh speaks, which signals to us something important is about to come. Because look at verse 2. The Lord answered me. He says, write the vision. So this idea, write the vision, it's kind of the all-consuming point of these next few verses. We need to see a few things about the vision itself. First, the vision's clarity. Because look at how verse 2 continues. Write the vision Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. In my experience, many Christians tend not to know what to do with many of the minor prophets. And maybe it's because you run into verses like Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2. Eventually the prophet says something, or God says something to the prophet, and you just think after the sentence ends, I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> Write the vision, make it plain, so he who runs with it may read it. What on earth does that mean? I actually asked that question myself on Monday this week when I was preparing the sermon. What on earth does that mean? Well, it can mean one of two things. It either means, it's speaking to the vision's clarity, it can mean one of two things about it. Number one, it either means that the vision is so clear that a courier could read these tablets while running. My kids, I don't know if you've ever read a book while running down the sidewalk. But if you do it, it's pretty difficult, isn't it? The smaller the print, the more there is, the harder it is to actually read and get where you're going with any safety. So it could mean that. Or it could also mean someone could run by the vision and find it so plain that they could understand it as they're running by. And maybe you've been in a car, you're just motoring down the highway and a billboard catches your eye, but there's so much information and content on the billboard that you can't take it all in before you've zoomed on past. But not so with God's vision. What he's getting ready to have Habakkuk write down is so plain that you can read it while running. You could run right by it and know exactly what it means for you. And the second thing he wants us to know is the vision's certainty. For look at verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God's Word, doesn't it, often require God's people to wait? Ever since God created man and spoke His promises to His people, what we find in Scripture over and over are stories of many, many years of waiting for His promises to come to pass. Just think of a few people in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. Noah waited what? 100 years for the promised flood. Abraham waited 25 years for the promised child. Joseph waited 14 years for the promised deliverance. Moses waited 40 years for the promised redemption. Jesus waits 30 years for the promised ministry. 
Now, kids, what you want to know, and students, what you want to know about God's promises, not only are these the strong foundations and anchors on which we want to hang our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, but also we want to know that sometimes living by God's promises mean you persevere with a long patience, waiting for them to come about. A patience and perseverance that in our context today seems altogether silly to many people. To wait that long for God's word to come true. But he says it has an appointed time, doesn't he? The promise is on the way. It's not going to arrive early. It's not going to arrive late. It's going to arrive exactly when God means for it to show up. You want to see the vision's clarity, its certainty, but also its centrality is what comes to us in verse 4 and 5. In 1510, the young monk who many of you know as Martin Luther He's afflicted by this troubled conscience, wanting to know how he can find forgiveness of his sins, how his soul can actually find rest in the midst of all its struggles. And so his spiritual counselors say, hey, Martin, you need to go to Rome because there's all these things, these relics in Rome that you can lay hands on, that you can look, that you can perform these ritualistic acts, and you're going to find forgiveness, indulgences for your sin through those actions or items. So he goes to Rome. And he's immediately troubled by all the vice and worldliness that he sees in the Roman church, but because he takes his spiritual counselors at their word, he goes to St. Uh, John Church of the Lateran, which has this 28-step staircase inside. That's supposedly the staircase that Jesus climbed when he was in Pontius Pilate's house just before he was crucified. And the church at Rome had said, if you climb up this staircase on your knees kiss each step and say a prayer along the way. When you reach the top, you'll have an indulgence for the forgiveness of your sins. So you can picture Luther going up one step on his knees, kissing the wood. But what he's recognizing is he doesn't feel any more forgiven for this action. And somewhere near the top, like a lightning bolt of truth, strikes his conscience, this promise of old, the just shall live by faith. And this phrase becomes in the words of his son Paul in a later letter what his dad made into the watchword of the Reformation. For years Martin studies this as it's communicated into the New Testament and once again as he is reaching back in his own struggle he's reaching back to the book of Habakkuk which notice what we're told in verse 4 the vision centrality behold his soul is puffed up it is not upright within him but the righteous shall live by his faith. What God is telling Habakkuk is something we see over and over in God's Word. There are only two ways you can live. There's the way of puffed up pride, which is the way of Babylon. That's who he means to refer to by these pronouns of his soul, or not right within him. You can go the way of Babylon, puffed up pride, which is the way of death. Or you can go the way of the righteous, which is a life lived by faith, which is a life lived unto eternal glory and blessing at the Father's right hand. So the New Testament authors pick up on these words from Habakkuk. You'll find them in the book of Romans, chapter 1. You'll find them in Galatians and Hebrews as well. And it becomes, for the New Testament authors, the apostles, the central promise for how they begin to articulate what we call justification. How is it that someone can be made right with God? How is it that someone can be forgiven of their sins? How is it that you who have sinned can be declared not guilty of transgression that you have done, justified before God. And what do they say? Quoting Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. 
faith and faith alone can grant the forgiveness of sins that every soul seeks. And students who want to know, he doesn't say, does he, right? The righteous shall live by his effort. The righteous shall live by her spiritual energy. They shall live, the righteous, by their expertise in the church. Simply and only the righteous shall live by faith. So which person in verse 4 do you most mirror? The person of puffed up pride or the righteous who lives by faith? The way of submission to God's sovereignty is the way of faith. And then you'll notice in verse 5, if you just look through it, in case Habakkuk didn't know what God thought about Babylon, he says that Babylon, these, these people I'm getting ready to use to discipline the nation of Judah, well, they're just full of drunkenness, arrogance, and greediness. Now, their puffed up pride will soon be their downfall and their own destruction, which is what we're going to see next week in verses 6 through 20 of chapter 2. Just hold on. I'm getting ready to do something with Babylon, yes, but ultimately I will judge them for their own sin. So you want to ask the question then that Habakkuk was asking, how is it that a righteous good God can work through such sinful evil empires? That's the struggle that Habakkuk has, this faith in the searching, and he's got faith in the waiting, looking for an answer. So what's God's answer to Habakkuk's question? Do you see it in the text? How is it that the sovereign God can do this that he's planning to do? It seems contrary to his name. It seems contrary to his nature. It seems contrary to his justice. How is it that God has the right to do this? Do you notice that God really doesn't give him an answer? At least not directly. He does respond to Habakkuk's struggle. But you want to see he doesn't resolve the tension. At least not yet. And isn't that true how God often relates to us in that way in our struggles. Over and over, you see people in Scripture, saints of old, crying out to God, help me understand what's going on. And he says, here's what you really need to know. And this is sufficient. I'm God and you are not. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Yes, I'm planning something you can't even begin to understand, but trust me, it's good. Trust me, it's right. Why? Because I'm good and I'm right. I have all sovereignty. Wait and faith and humility on me. That's the answer Habakkuk gets. I suppose like many children, I grew up wanting to be an astronaut. And clearly my career ambitions have not reached fulfillment. <laughs> but somehow, still throughout my years, I exercise my interest in space by reading all these books about space travel and the space race and American history past. And maybe it's why in my youth one of my favorite movies was Apollo 13. You know, the story of that faded and famous Apollo mission that was meant to land on the moon but never actually got to land on the moon. And one of my favorite scenes from this movie, which is quite true to the actual story, is actually nothing to do with space. It's when the Apollo 13 commander Jim Lovell recalls this time when he was a, a fighter pilot in World War II in the Pacific Theater, and he remembers one night he's flying his Banshee fighter plane over the Pacific trying to get back to his aircraft carrier, but he's got many problems. First of all, it's deep, dark, black night, and he can't see anything. It's combat conditions, so the running lights of the aircraft carrier are off. And to amplify his difficulty, the instrument panel had just gone out. His radar was out. His homing signal wasn't working. And so here he was confronting the possibility of dying in the darkness, fearing if he was ever going to make it home. 
And then if you know the story, you know that he remembered from his study in classes gone past that aircraft carriers tend to churn up this phosphorescent algae that glows even under the water in the night. And so sure enough, he starts looking for it. And eventually he sees it, what he calls this green heart carpet guiding him all the way home to the aircraft carrier, landing in the dark. And there's a sense in which what you find Habakkuk doing in our text today is he is in the midst of a dark struggle, trying to figure out how he is going to land his faith. Where he is he going to rest his hopes in the midst of all the suffering that surrounds him? And it is true that even so, so for so many of us in our lives, we find ourselves in a deep, dark night of the soul, a dark season of suffering when affliction and hardship, persecution seem to be rising. We want to know why. My question then for you here at the end is, on what will you anchor your life in the midst of such dark nights? I want to give you two anchors from our text as we begin to close. The two anchors, it sure seems, that God has given to Habakkuk. In the dark night, number one, live by faith in who God is. By faith in who God is. And in the first verse, the first prayer of Habakkuk in our text, at least, in verse 12, he has four different names of God that he immediately pours forth in, seemingly giving him greater certainty and comfort in the midst of his darkness. He knows who God is, and so he pleads based on who God is. So many of our problems, isn't it true, that in the Christian life are rooted in a wrong understanding of who God is. In the midst of our suffering, we're tossed about more than we should be because we struggle to remember who God is. Maybe the best thing you can do this week is grab another Christian, a church member, and meditate on the truth of who God is. You know, students, some of you are already into your summer months of vacation. Some of you are soon to be in your summer months of vacation. Maybe the best thing you could do this summer is learn more about who God is about his character, about his names, about his essence towards us. There's faith in who God is, but also in the dark night we live by faith in what God has said. That's the whole point of the beginning of God's response in chapter 2. Write down this vision. The just shall live by faith. Yes, it's going to take some time to come to pass. Yes, it's going to see that my promise is slow, but it's certain, it's steady. It will indeed bring good to his people. So in the dark night, what do you tend to live by? Habakkuk is calling us to faith in God's character, faith in God's word, which does point us, doesn't it, to Jesus Christ? Faith in God's character. The book of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature, the radiance of his glory. He is God's word, isn't he? As John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. By all things, Christ holds the universe by his word of power. So looking to God in faith, the righteous will live by faith as little more than the righteous will live by faith in Jesus Christ, which surely then makes sense. The anchor for our soul is none other than Christ himself, which is why the book of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 says this, Jesus Christ is the sure and steady anchor for our soul. On what anchor are you resting your life? as you go through suffering and struggle. The righteous live by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do thank you that you are a God who, in the midst of our struggles and confusion, in the midst of our difficulty, 
you answer us according to who you are and what you have said. Father, we pray that you would increase our faith, that you would help us to wait, that you would give us perseverance, that you would give us patience in the midst of the suffering and sorrow that so often comes against us. Let us be immovable in our trust. Let us be firm and rooted in Jesus Christ, knowing that, yes, you are sovereign and that you mean your sovereignty and you even promise your sovereignty to bring us great good, even when we can't see it or understand it. So give us humility in our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.